Hello, everyone. This is Noah. And I'm Simon. And welcome to the Resolve Podcast. We're your resource for all things mental health, academic success, and personal growth. Devoted to helping students thrive and build the resilience to succeed in school and in life. Content warning, this episode contains some discussions of difficult topics such as suicide. In this week's episode, I speak with Michaela Brewer, who is an author, speaker, researcher, mental health advocate, and activist. She has played basketball for Team Canada and Stanford University, where she graduated with a BS in human biology and a notation in science communication in 2020. As a multidisciplinary writer and researcher, Michaela has published poetry, fiction, neuroscience, and sports psychology research, news, features, and op-eds for a variety of platforms, journals, and organizations. Michaela is passionate about exploring the intersection of science and storytelling as it relates to mental health. She is currently the head of content and research at Time Out and author of the science fiction book, The Sifting Project. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah. What, what else do people say other than that? I feel like it's, it's this, whenever any podcast starts, you say, thank you. You have to say, thank you. I wonder <laughs> like what, what, what would be like a different introduction to a podcast? Have you heard anything other than thank you for coming on? Thank you for having me. What, like, oh, I, I got to do better than that. I got to do better than that. Like maybe I should just start with, you know, some random question about you um, just to get it going. Like mm-hmm. Michaela, what is your favorite book and why? Ooh, that's tough. You see my stack of books. <laughs> yes, yes, uh, but nobody else does. <laughs> favorite book and why? I think uh, "To Shake the Sleeping Self" um, by Jedediah Jenkins. The why? I think I just really like the way that he talks about time and how we experience time passing um, throughout our lives. He's was a lawyer and then decided to just go on this bike trip from, I think, Portland to Patagonia for the most part by himself and just kind of like reset and recalibrate. And one of the things he noticed was just how much slower the time passed and that that was something that we tend to associate with kids. Um, And we feel like time passes slower when we're kids but it's interesting that that doesn't get carried through into our adult life. Um, so trying to find ways to carve out spaces where we feel time passing much slower because we're more present. So I really like the way that he wrote about that. So that's why it's my favorite. I feel like time passes slowest for me. I was thinking about this yesterday when I was bike on the bike, like a stationary bike. I find that 20 minute workout there, time passes very slowly. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> training right training yes, yes. Passes, time passes slowly of course we're already talking about sports and time which are two big topics for you because you are an athlete former athlete at stanford university as the introduction that we haven't said here that i will say when i record it will say and an author of a book called the sifting project which i think is somewhat related to science fiction and time so with that tell me Tell me a little, tell us a little bit about yourself. Tell us a little bit about your story at Stanford and how it's led you to, to here today. Yeah, Ooh, big question. Um, so Stanford, I, of course, played basketball and it was a very, very big part of who I was and my identity. I think I very much wrapped myself into like, I am an athlete and not much else at least at first as a freshman. And I think I struggled a lot with that because I I used basketball as an escape for a lot of other things that were going on in my life, especially in high school and senior year. I struggled a lot with my mental health. Um, I lost a childhood friend to suicide and I was just trying, I think, to run away from some of those things. Or I thought that, you know, going on the other side of the continent all the way to California would allow me to start over, but a lot of those struggles followed me and they started to impact my performance and how I was able to show up on the court. And I wasn't playing the same way I knew how to, and I 
just wasn't performing at the level that I thought that I could or should be able to. And I thought that I could tough out a lot of the mental health related things that were happening to me. So let's slow it back to high school and and work us from there. So you obviously, I mean, I know you played for team Canada, team Canada as well. So yeah, work through the senior year and what that was like trying to balance the identities and how you, what happened? Well, I think I put a lot of pressure on myself. Um, I'm from a small town and I kind of became like somewhat of a well-known name. Um, and there was a lot of pressure that I felt externally and that I put on myself, you know, to be like the kid that played for team Canada and went to Stanford and, and all of these things. And like I had to perform and there was a lot of things going on in the backdrop of my life that were really, really difficult. And I buried them down thinking that, you know, I should be able to just handle all of this and that basketball um, and my performance because that identity was so strong could be the coping mechanism. And eventually it wasn't. And that's when I get to my freshman year at Stanford. And I- What were you running away from? (sighs) The pain and the emotions that were coming with living with depression and with OCD neither were formally diagnosed until I was in college and in the hospital after suicide attempt. And I thought I could leave those feelings um, behind with the things that caused them. Mm. And I couldn't. So. So part of you, there was a lot of darkness happening. I mean, depression and OCD together is, is brutal because there's so much fear, but there's also so, so little strength and energy um, to yeah. face those fears. Of, of course, everybody has a different experience with that, but that's a double, just a, a double diagnosis that's extremely hard to handle. And then basketball was the bright lights, literally and figuratively for you, that ev- everything else around you is feeling dark and basketball was, was bright. Um, how did it get to a point where you couldn't, you couldn't, just rely on the lights of the basketball court anymore and it led and it led to a suicide attempt what work us through whatever you're comfortable sharing about the inner the inner experience of that and and how you managed and handled it and you're still here today yeah um I think it got to a point where the symptoms I was experiencing came onto the court with me a lot of or up until then, I could kind of check them at the door. But competing at a place like Stanford required a whole other level up um, in terms of performance and focus and just being present and being like in the gym for four or five hours every day. And that was something that I wasn't used to like even playing for team Canada, it was in, it was in short, shorter spurts that I could handle and that I could set things aside for those shorter spurts. Um, or in, in high school, like, you know, the games were not quite as high of a level as maybe what I played internationally and at Stanford. And so, um, I got to a point where like those two things couldn't be mutually exclusive. Like they started to overlap um, and student life is crazy too. And being a student. Yeah. Um, especially at a place like Stanford. And I, at the time was pre-med. Um, so I was taking all the super fun classes, <laughs> the hardest classes in the school. Yeah. <laughs> so and looking back, I know, like I was trying to be so busy that I could drown out what, what was going on in my head. And, um, I just, I had at that point so equated my ability to succeed academically and athletically with my self-worth and yeah, just my overall like sense of belonging um, that when I couldn't perform and when that started to change and to drop and be noticeable to other people, um, I just hit a wall and I was like, I don't want to live like this anymore. And I don't know how to handle these things and I don't have words for them. Um, I was never taught language for it. And um, 
I just hit, yeah, I hit the breaking point. Um, and I thought I couldn't do it anymore. And, and the only alternative at that point was to not, to, to not exist, to not live. Yeah. Yeah. And that's really scary part about it. Um, is, and I think a misconception about suicide, um, is that it's not always related to mental illness in particular, like there are other life circumstances that lead you to that place. And I think in a lot of cases, and definitely in mine, I knew that there were people who wanted to help and who knew that something was wrong and wanted to support um, my teammates where I give like so much credit to them. They were absolutely incredible through something that they didn't understand or have any idea how to navigate. Um, and I knew those things and still just felt like I can't do this anymore. And I didn't want to burden them. And I didn't understand what support looked like and what boundaries looked like in terms of support at that point. So, yeah. so people were trying to not come in a little bit and, and, and it was hard to let them in. It was, it was just hard to bring people in. It was, um, it was, and the few times that I did, I felt guilty about it. Yeah. Like, like that, the burden and, and yeah. like, I'm, I'm wasting people's time or I'm, I'm not worthy of getting any support or. Yeah. It, it's, it's so, um, it's very, it's very hard with a lot of people with mental health for example, with OCD, people have a whole world that, that that exists in their in their brain. It's a story. There's there's all these objects and places, and yeah. and even if someone says, "Let me help you," but the the hardest part is actually talking and telling people this is what's actually happening, um, because then it's it's exposed. Um, but until that point, people might be knocking, and and you know at the back of your mind, like. I could probably let somebody in here and they can help me navigate this, but it's just really hard to talk, to talk. Yeah. And that's something that is not taught either. Like we're not taught the language for all of these things. Like people might ask, like, what do you need or how can I help? And if you're really struggling and you don't have language, like you don't know um, and you can't answer that question very well. And that's another huge hurdle that happens. So how, how, how did the language get, how did you connect with people? How, how did you take yourself out of that place at that time? It sounds like it almost, it, it hit very, very to the bottom. How did, what happened there? Yeah. Um, I mean, I spent a lot of time in the hospital um on a suicide hold for a few days and then in the psychiatric ward going through very intense but also very life-altering therapy um life-altering in a good way with other people who were in very similar situations as I was and we were guided through conversations and ways to frame things and you picked up on you know how somebody else turned something into a metaphor and like um in a lot of ways like I found abilities to explain things in sports terminology because that's what I know and that's what the people who wanted to support me know um but I just had to spend a lot of time just like with my own thoughts and with a notebook and a pen <laughs> and just scribbling my way through it and trying to figure out what's the best way to let this come out and not just be in my brain um, to like take it and actually physically put it somewhere else, whether that was in group therapy or um, in my notebook or even medication for a little while. I was pretty heavily medicated, um, at least at first, just to allow for other things to mm -hmm function um but yeah a, a lot of time away and um missed a lot of basketball and it was a very slow transition um back into competing um and a slow transition out of really intensive therapy like that where I felt that I could do some of those things on my own 
um, or with a teammate or that kind of a thing. So you, you, at some point, you got the help you needed. You, you, you stopped staying alone and, 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 and there's a lot of people, you know, you obviously hope it never gets to a point where your life is in danger. Um, and it's just the hardest thing. It's the hardest thing to ask for help, but it sounds like you, you got some, some, you're saved, you saved, you're saved. I don't know how, how do you, how do you, how do you define that experience of like when you finally were able to come up with the language to talk to people? Yeah. I mean, I, I don't know if I realized it at the time, but looking back, um, I see it as like, not necessarily like getting to the other side of a bridge, but realizing that there is another side um, and that the other side is healing and having a capacity to talk through some of these things and really let them out um, and be vulnerable, but that I'm always going to be like somewhere on that bridge between that and the past, which is all the really, really dark sad stuff that I, and I don't want to go way back to the other side of the bridge. Um, but I'm always going to kind of be somewhere in the, in between. I think a lot of healing journey stories get put into this bucket of like, Oh, you've made it. Um, you figured it out. You've gotten totally to the other side. Like you should never struggle again. And that's not true and not how it happens. Um, you definitely grow and it's, you know, a net positive, I think in most cases, but um, you're always kind of somewhere in between. And sometimes you do inch a little bit towards the past and that's, that's okay. As long as you're aware of it and know how to bring yourself closer to the other side. And I now have the language and the resources to do that. Um, but I first had to see that they were an option. <laughs> I think people are more comfortable with the conversation of the, you know, failure to rags to riches, you know, uh, you know, yeah you know, being, being lost to being found. It's, it's this movie type perspective of, you know, I always think, and it's what's so hard about doing the work is that people, you know, they're watching a movie and often people will relate to the hero's journey, mm -hmm. which is a, which is a, you know, a mythology, a mythological structure. Sometimes it's helpful for people to see themselves on the hero's journey, but sometimes it's pretty, not helpful because it's like I am I was here and I did a montage of me you know training and climbing and I was in the hospital and I did all these things and now I'm rocky and you know invincible and enlightened and it's it puts a lot of pressure I think on people to radically transform themselves into non-human like yeah. where, where you don't have negative emotion or you're, you know, you know, there's a lot of these like spiritual teachers that you might see that, you know, they, they go on tour, they always have a smile on their face. Um, I'm not saying that there's not a genuine happiness or joy, but it's, it's like, I, there's a, there's like an underlying, like, yeah. I don't know what, what, how do how do you see that? I don't, I don't know. I mean, I just think it's more nuanced than that. Like there's so many things that we put into categories like black and white binary categories. Um, and most things don't fit <laughs> into those categories. And I'll never forget my professor, um, anthropology professor in college um, gave us this example of like, imagine having um, this array of cars lined up in a parking lot and they're transitioning from red to yellow. And so there's orange ones in the middle um, and it's kind of like a spectrum of colors from red to yellow. And you're given a piece of chalk and told to draw the line between red and orange and orange and yellow. Everybody's gonna choose a different spot because you don't actually know where orange becomes yellow or where red becomes orange. Um, and I just, I love that as a metaphor or analogy for like everything that we go through in life and everything that we try to put into a box or a binary um, of like pain versus totally healed. It doesn't work that way. Um, everybody's always somewhere kind of in the continuum. And 
trying to to figure that you know so you obviously have a story and the story has at some point that inner the dark 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 not functioning whatsoever and then there's you know trying your best living the best life that you can not being perfect not pretending that it's perfect and that's more of the realistic story um so tell us a little bit about you know how you've lived and what you've been doing since that really really dark time yeah um well i think the biggest thing is that basketball changed for me a lot um i had to realize that it was not the one and only thing <laughs> and i still loved it and wanted to do well um but i had to learn that it was secondary um and that it could coexist with a lot of other things and so i found passion and the love for other things that were at Stanford that um, really became a part of who I was, especially writing, um, because I spent so much time in the hospital with literally just a notebook and a pen and nothing else. <laughs> um, I grew to really love that process of trying to put things into words and find ways to create metaphors or create um, some kind of dialogue that would allow people to resonate or understand an emotion or a feeling or something that typically doesn't have words or that we think doesn't have words. Um, and so that's kind of when I got into writing and writing specifically about mental health and then maybe even more specifically for athletes um, where there's that really, really strong embedded stigma of mental toughness and just powering through at all costs um, and trying to uncover some of the things that I experienced and that other athletes experienced. And I ended up writing for the Stanford Daily, the newspaper, um, as kind of like the first step in that sophomore year and just wrote about some topics I thought were interesting. And, and then that kind of branched into bigger projects in my, my senior year um, kind of culminating project that we had to do, um, which ended up being about science communication and, and mental health and how we communicate research and all of these really like jargony things um, in science and in mental health related science, like psychology and psychiatry um, and how we can kind of creatively bring that to other people, um, whether it's athletes or anyone else. So that's kind of still where I'm at. I'm still doing a lot of those things, um, maybe a little bit more focused, but yeah. So you found part the biggest, most important thing that you did to get yourself, aside from support, all sorts of other things that were happening, it was you, you found words. You, you, you mentioned like you needed to use a pen and, and write, like gather yourself. It was like, it's hard to describe how, not having words for something and try to it's i i don't know what the experience of that is like other than you, it's like almost in a almost a dream state of some kind where you're not full in control of you don't you're like in the middle of a scene or like just it's very confusing it's hard to gather yourself um but i'm sure now that you have a voice that you've started to discover you're able to actually reflect back on that time with it with words um and I'm sure you, I'm sure you did, did some of that. And now you're doing that. You're writing about mental health and science education. I, I, I agree. I, I think that there's a big disconnect between the technical clinical language. Mm -hmm. It's almost, yeah. I'm, I'm struggling with that because I'm very interested in mental health education. And part of the problem that I'm seeing with mental health education is first of all, an emphasis on some superficiality. So a lot of times you see a lot of like, just be just mindfulness, which is nothing wrong with it, but just like a lot of mindfulness based focus, um, less on the regulation, uh, a lot of mental health skills that are being underutilized. And so that's part of the problem is just not all of it's getting out there. Yeah. And, and the, I'm not sure about this one other than 
for a long time, the owners of mental health education were therapists and psychologists and researchers, and it hasn't yet trickled into the society at large. And I think that the way forward for mental health is therapy is just not going to be the only way. It's, it's really inaccessible and it's not equitable for everybody to access. And so if only some people get the skills, like for all science education, for example, it's pretty equitable distribution in terms of who gets to learn about it. I mean, there's, we can talk about nuanced issues within that, but you know, people get to learn. Everybody in grade five is learning about basic science. Then there's grade nine, grade 10, grade 11, grade 12. There's, yeah. there's, there's pretty hands-on re- um, pr- presentation and teaching, but not yet for the behavioral sciences and the mental health. And I wonder how disruptive it would be to the therapy industry as a therapist myself. Not that it would change therapy's effectiveness or importance, but it would really alleviate so much of the no language. I have no language to describe. I don't know what's going on. Well, if if you learned a language at a young age, a non-clinical language that I'm always working on right now, creating non-clinical language, if you learned it at a young age, it doesn't mean you wouldn't need support necessarily. Maybe you do need support. Every society ever has had mentors, coaches, teachers, rabbis, therapists, you know, it's not new. Um, So the teacher's model, the training model, the coaching model is always going to be there. But teaching is and doing that forever. So I wonder how that would impact the the missing language piece that you were talking about. There's, I feel that there's so many people that don't have a language for it. Yeah. And like, I mean, yeah, just going off of that like it wouldn't necessarily like you're right it wouldn't necessarily negate the need for therapy and support but you would know how to verbalize what you're feeling and what you need um which would help you get the right kind of support because I think um I mean you know I with best intentions I think a lot of times like people will say like oh you're struggling like be like go see a shrink or like there's no knowledge of what the different kinds of um people in mental health care do um and who they are like what's the difference between a psychologist and a psychiatrist most people don't know um and versus just kind of like a general counselor and like um, a nutritionist and all these different people who do incredible work um and who are there to help but people don't know like yeah, how to verbalize and how to ask for that or know where to look for that. And you're right. Like, that's something that I think should be taught when you're 10 or 11 years old, when those, you know, mental health related struggles start to become more common statistically. Um, Yeah. Like learning that just like you learn that the mitochondria is a powerhouse in the cell. (laughs) Like, yeah, I agree. That it would save, it's, it's the kind of thing that Nobody should ever be 20 years old and, and not understand about intrusive thoughts and, and all sorts of difficult internal experiences that people don't have languages for and internalize as being, you know, they're monsters for thinking about having a thought about this thing and that thing. Yeah. It, would, it would really ease this mental health issues in our society cannot whatsoever be solved with just therapy. Um, yeah. So that that's a big a big topic and it sounds like one that you're it's very close to you so you're involved in something called timeout which is for athletes do you want to tell us a little bit about that yeah for sure it's um so timeout is a digital health platform um and it uh connects athletes to different kinds of services that they would need and makes communication lines between them and their uh, mental health care providers um much easier and smoother. So we have two different apps um, and then an admin dashboard that kind of navigates everything. Um, one app is for the athletes in particular, and they have a bunch of features um, specifically built for them. And then there's an app for the uh, licensed clinicians um, and mm. a series of apps that are, or sorry, features that are uh, specific to them and what they need. And all of those applications in the admin dashboard uh, communicate in real time. And so something like scheduling an appointment becomes so much easier or something like an athlete exhibiting a red flag 
um, for crisis becomes so much easier to navigate if that is synced up with whoever their care provider is or whoever their designated supporter is um, that they've chosen. So really just making that much easier um, to navigate as an athlete and as a provider, because it's confusing for sure right now on both sides. And what, what are the unique, well, maybe bring this back to yourself with mental health for athletics, because this is for, for athletes. So there's a unique experience of mental health that you're talking about. So what is that? And I guess I'll ask you about that through your experience now of not being an athlete, like you are not a student athlete anymore. That wasn't, it's not the direction that you've moved into, but you're still very involved. So what's your relationship like with the sport um, post working in the sport? What's, or in being professional in the sport, what's it like now? Do you still play basketball and how does that work? Yeah. Yeah. My relationship with it has changed a lot. Um, I, I don't play basketball anymore. Um, I actually haven't since 2020, um, which is still really odd to say, but I also don't like love it any less. And I still enjoy, um, like just this past week, I went to WNBA game and I was just like super into it, (laughs) just like I would be on the bench. Um, or if I was competing, like I still really, really love it. Um, but I think I've decided that there are other things that I want to pursue and make time for. And um, I don't have as much of that urge to be in the gym all the time and like working to be better at it. Um, I have that urge for other things now. And I've spent a lot of time trying to tell myself like, that's okay. Um, And that, you know, maybe I didn't climb to the highest rung on the ladder in terms of basketball. Um, at one point I wanted to be an Olympian and that didn't happen. And that's no longer, you know, a goal and, and that's okay. Um, but that doesn't mean that I hate basketball or that I don't want to be involved with it. And, um, I think that's why I got involved with timeout is that I still wanted to be connected to sports in some way, because it did mean so much to me. And, think of basketball almost as like this old friend that like taught me how to navigate a lot of things, whether that's a conversation with a coach, um, which kind of mimics like a conversation with a boss (laughs) that I now have to have. Um, and like kind of guided me and taught me how to fly. And in some cases, um, and now I've learned that I can fly on my own without it. And, and, and that's okay. And, you know, if I ever wanted to return to it or just go play pickup or whatever, like I could, and that relationship would, would still be there. Um, so I think, yeah, I don't know if that made sense, but that's kind of how I see it in my brain. <laughs> well, there's, there's two questions I'll ask with that, but the first question is you're not playing. So let's see, then work with the analogy with the friend, mm-hmm. good friends, maybe sometimes you need a break from, etc. but you're not playing right now. Mm-hmm. Is there, is there, is, is that a, for you, is that something that you just need for yourself? Are there hesitations around playing in that way? You know, you graduated, you played in Stanford and ended in 20, 2020. Yeah. Um, what's, has there been temptations? What's it like? Like, why aren't you playing? I guess. <laughs> uh, there have been temptations. I mean, I think COVID definitely played a role in like having access to gyms and, you know, that kind of a thing was, was really tricky for sure. Um, but I think, I don't know, I don't feel as like drawn, like I don't have like all athletes kind of have that like itch and like that urge to like be working on their sport and like to try and be better. Um, I've definitely had like urges where like, Oh, it'd be fun to go, you know, shoot around and pick up a basketball. Um, but not in like a super competitive way, which is interesting. Like if I'm going to, if I'm going to go play, it's more like, I'd rather just go to the gym by myself and just shoot around, um, and just kind of hold the basketball. Have you done that yet? Hey buddy. Um, I have. Yeah. Okay. So you've shot, you've, you've, I have, um, Yeah. Like when I, when I feel that, like, Hey, I want to go like, like, I want to go phone my friend and say, Hey, what's going on? Like, it's kind of a, a similar thing. Um, 
and it's, it's a fun, like reassurance of like, oh, like I'm still kind of good at, (laughs) um, doing some of these things. And it's just, it's more of a, a fun, less stressful relationship now that I have with it. And yeah, I, I don't know if I actually have a concrete answer on why I haven't like played, played, like pick up with people. Um, I think is maybe I don't want basketball to be competitive anymore. I kind of want it to just be something that I can go to. Um, it's hard to turn, it's hard to not have that gear. Um, it is. Oh, it is for sure. Like if I were to go play, I'd be like, all right, <laughs> it's time for everyone else to lose. <laughs> right. Right. And I, I, I also, I, there's obviously in some ways a pathological part of competition, but there's also an invigorating part. Um, yeah. For sure. Which I love, but it's just, it's hard to sometimes find that balance, especially if you played at the levels that you did. So what, what do you love about, what are, what are the best things about, what were there and are the best things about being a student athlete? Yeah, that's a great question. I think the best things are definitely the community um, and the hype and the support that you get. Um, I mean, there's nothing like the locker room after a great win. Um and just the energy that you get, even from other sports, like being on campus and like going to other games, like the women's volleyball games, like we were really close with the volleyball team. And um, like just, yeah, feeding off of that, that energy and that passion, like it's so raw. Um, So I love that. And my teammates are my best friends. You spend so much time with them. Um, And I, I mean, I just went and visited three or four of them um, over the past couple of weeks and I hadn't seen them in two years and I went and saw them and we hadn't skipped a beat. And that's just something I think that, I mean, you make friendships like that in life in general, but that's really unique to sports is how you go to battle with those people, like really. um, And you always have that experience in common. And I think that's really just an amazing thing. So that's what, stands out the community and also the sort of joy experience of it and what about the mental component of what it what the sort of transferable skills that you've alluded to that you've taken with you what are some of those that you really have leaned on from your time as an athlete yeah i think leadership for sure um and being confident Um, I think especially in women's sports and women kind of transitioning into the workforce, um, maintaining that, that confidence and that, um, confidence in your ability to lead, I think is really important. Um, like having the experience of being a team captain for team Canada, like, and being put in that role of like, you have to be the main communicator and you have to be confident in that. Otherwise, it's going to be a mess. (laughs) And I think, yeah, that really, really helped me, especially like vocally, like being confident in my voice and telling, not telling people what to do, but like knowing what's going on and communicating that to people like, and holding people accountable in a kind and compassionate way. Um, but I mean, I was a teenager at that time. And so like learning how to do that was really, really helpful. Um, and then again, in college, like as a senior, like even something like giving the the pregame pep talk um, was something that I had to do as a senior. And it was so fun, but it was also terrifying. Um, but it was a really, really great like leadership opportunity because I had to play off of what people's energy was like like if they were really nervous then okay I had to pay attention to that or if they were really amped like maybe too much then okay we got to bring it down a notch um so yeah I would say leadership I guess is like an overarching category and you were th- so you were the t- the captain of of the team Canada what 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 team was this the the you was this high school or, or post the U18 High school. It was, oh, I think it was you. It was either U18 or U17. I was, uh, I was a senior in high school. So I was 17 wow. or 18. Yeah. Wow. That's really cool. So some, that's some of the, the perks of it. And what would you tell student athletes that are having a difficult time 
figuring out how to be healthy with their athletics. What are some of the things that you'd want to tell them? Yeah. Um, that's a great question. Somebody said to me not that long ago that, um, performance, like the highest level of performance requires mental and physical sacrifices. Like it really does. Like something like running a marathon is an amazing feat, but it is really not that great for your body. Um, so I think there's a line for everybody. And that line is different. What gets sacrificed mentally and physically, whether that's your time or your sleep or your nutrition. Um, and there's a line there that you have to be aware of and, and comfortable with, um, because in order to perform your best, like that's true. And if that's something that you really, really want, then there are things that you do have to sacrifice to get to that moment. Um, but you have to know that there is a cost for some things and to be aware of that cost and how it's impacting you. And if it starts to impact you in a way that it impacts your ability to function and feel safe and just be mentally well in general, then you know that you've maybe crossed that line and that boundary for yourself. I think it's tough just because being resilient and being yeah. tough um, are important traits in general. Yeah. And a lot of people, not in the non-athlete world, especially students, like there's a, some people struggle with just aimlessness, procrastination, and not not having a firm sense of accountability. It's really tough. Yeah. I always work I work with so many students, and and I say that the job description of a student, let alone a student athlete, is is like a ten out of ten difficulty in the sense that most people that work in jobs have somebody that they have to report to. They have clear guidelines, clear directions. There's accountability. If you miss an exam or something, you don't just write a note and hopefully get an extension. I mean, like you can get fired. There's always this difficulty about the fact that people have accessibility needs. People have serious mental health needs that they need to figure out. Mm -hmm. But there's something admirable as well with a healthy sense of accountability and a healthy sense of responsibility that is really hard to, to have without a team. And athletes get to develop that, but I guess they don't want to develop it to a point where they lose any language to describe the struggle that they might be having in the process. Yeah. Yeah. I agree completely. Like resilience is, is a great thing, but there's a, there's a, there's a difference between like pushing through something like, Oh, my I'm going to write a chemistry test and chemistry is not my strong suit. And it's really, really, really hard, but I'm going to go study really hard. And I'm going to try my best. And maybe I'm going to stay up a little bit later than I usually do. Um, and there's a difference between like that kind of pushing through and being resilient through something like that. Um, or even like something in your life that's uncontrollable, like that somebody dies and that's something that you can't control. Right. And it impacts you in a way that you know, you never see coming. Um, so living through that is resilient, but then there are times when you really have to recognize, like, I can't function right now and I am going to crash and burn if I continue to do what I'm doing. Um, so there's a, there's a difference there. That's something you don't push through. Um, and I, the analogy that I think my, one of my um, strength and conditioning coaches used was like, you know, there's a difference between doing the extra chin up when, you know, you probably can't <laughs> or trying to do it. Um, and then trying to push through practice when you've slept two hours the night before, and you are super depressed, um, and are barely functioning and you're struggling through practice and missing all your shots and you're getting blamed for it by your coaches for not being present or not being focused. Like that's a different level of like you don't push through at that point so there's you know the, the resiliency is a fine line um you, you've got people have to have some level of you know i have this thing going i have that thing god forbid they there's tragedies that you know hopefully people the, the bottom line i think and this is actually going to lead to another question is is about coaches and the systemic part of it 
Are there things that you'd want to say to people that are on the other side of that administration coaches? I know, for example, at schools where engineering programs, uh, at least in Canada, have ridiculous requirements. The amount of school, basically people need to be working like, some people need to be working like 60 hours or so just to keep up. Um, sleep is sacrificed. Socials are sacrificed. Things that we would, you know, the administration might talk about work-life balance, talk about healthiness, talk about prioritizing mental health. So what would you say to coaches, teachers on this issue where they don't want to sacrifice athletics and greatness, but it seems like that's associated with, it can't, like it can't mix with like compassion almost like, what, what would you say to them? Yeah, that is a great question. Um, I think I'd say that performance is not the metric for struggle. I think a lot of times coaches and administration assume like, oh, if the program is performing really well and the athletes are performing and the teams are winning and whatnot, um, that there's nothing wrong. And I think, yeah, performance cannot be the red flag. Um, so like, okay, oh, now we get worried if the teams start losing or they're, they're struggling or um, entire programs as a whole are struggling. I think there has to be an understanding. And I hope that, you know, we're going in this direction in general. I think we are, um, that there are life circumstances outside of athletics um, that impact people very greatly. And you can't always check everything at the door. Um, as much as that's the message that athletes get, like leave everything at the door. We're worried about practice now. Like, okay, well, maybe you can leave at the door, you know, the homework assignment that you skipped or didn't do super well on, but not everything falls in that category. And so I think knowing that people could be going through things and still performing well is important um, and making sure to like build in like times to check in about that. Like, hey, how are you and how is your life <laughs> outside of sports? I think that that would probably be one of the most, I mean, I just, in my head, I, I, I'm imagining coaches listening and thinking like, yeah, in theory, that's great. But I like this team, you know, we need six, you know, 6am training. We need, so sometimes there's like fraternal type initiations into groups. I don't know if that's like the athletics where it's like, Let's make you miserable for three weeks. I mean, hazing stuff. I don't know. I just feel like uh, there's got to be a balance. I don't know what that is. I don't lean towards complete, you know, let go of all expectations and that nonsense and or extreme, you know, hard nose only. And But maybe the most important thing is to have gut checks with all the students often um making it clear people talk to me if there's something going on talk to each other let's have part of our meeting half an hour anybody just want to bring something to the table that they're that they're struggling with like almost peer support initiations things like that mm -hmm. um just open lines of possibility to use language to to communicate and see where that goes i don't know yeah. I don't know if you're working on that with, uh, with timeout, but we're definitely trying to, I think, I think the biggest thing, at least that we've heard and some of the research that we've done is that whether or not they show it or how rigid their wording and rules are coaches and admin and mental health care providers and all of those people they're not unbreakable either. <laughs> mm -hmm. um, they struggle with mental health. And like my therapist two years ago um, died by suicide and that hit me like a bus um, because I thought, oh, this person is a, is a professional. Like it never even occurred to me, right? That they could struggle with something that they were supposed to be an expert in. And I think all of those people in positions where they can make changes um, have to be willing to be vulnerable to and say like, Hey, this is a psychologically safe space. And like, I didn't sleep last night and I'm really struggling with 
these two things. And I want you all to know as, you know, my players that you can tell me if you're going through something that's really impacting you um, in a way that, you know, you can't perform um, and you need to take a day or whatever and have those conversations like somewhat go both ways. It's tough because I think coaches and admin, like they're in that position, that authority somewhat position. Um, but that doesn't mean that they need to be like super, super rigid and not, you know, be open at all. Um, so I think, yeah, that's. You can be more open than therapists can to their clients. To their yeah. Clients. <laughs> um, yeah. And that's another whole other like hurdle because yeah, you all. Mm-hmm. Can't well, we can talk it. to each other. Yeah. Um, yeah. So. Uh, I hope, I hope that I actually don't, I actually just think perhaps if there was more of an openness, it would just lead to people probably getting out of spirals faster. And I hate to say this because like when people talk about like being like, let me work on my mental health so I can be more productive. But I wonder if they'll actually be better at their athlete, athletics, at their work, their craft, because They have someone to talk to and they feel even more supported and they know that they have that net to lean on if they need to sleep or something. And then they'll actually be better. Like maybe this in the most, in the cynical way would improve, improve outcomes or something. I don't know if people are researching that. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's the angle. I think that will eventually end up going. You have to do that because you need to prove that it's better. Yeah. That rest is productive. (laughs) Yeah. This is a long-term slow thing. I I think, I I think it's one of these industries that's just full of, you know, motivational platitudes of like, no pain, no gain, like go be big, be bold, be great, you know, and they're all great. They're all motivating, like to put on before, you know, to get yourself amped up, but Mm -hmm. yeah, maybe a counter of conversation. So last question for you in this interview to move what I, which what I think is most interesting from my perspective, I mean, I don't know if it's most interesting, but is your diversity of interest. So you, you're very much into the sports and athletic world and mental health, but now, but you've also written a a science fiction book. How does, where where does that all fit in? Yeah. um, I think. I mean, I've always had it in my head that I want to write a book of some sort. Um, I didn't know it was going to be science fiction, Um, but there was a novel writing class at Stanford my senior year. It's only available like every couple of years, I think. And I just saw it and I needed one more requirement um, for my creative writing minor. So I did a major in human biology and then a minor in creative writing. And I was like, you know what, let's just go for it. And so I had a lot of random ideas about what I could write about. I love like all of the Marvel, like all those sci-fi kind of fun things. And um, I wanted to try it. And I've always really, really loved dialogue in fiction, especially um, because you can explore so much between the characters and really like shape it to portray a message that maybe you otherwise wouldn't see in real life. Um, And so I wanted to try and tackle that. And then especially with everything that the world was going through in 2020 and the years since as well, um, and really give people some hope and some conversations to like think about um, and apply to their own life. So like the characters in my book are like, there's a lot of dialogue, but that's intentional um, because they're really, really hard conversations. I try to make them that way on purpose um, to just kind of give hopefully some guidance um, for talking about really, really difficult things like, you know, privilege and where you come in um, to help people who don't have the same experiences as you do. And what is your role in that and all those types of things. And so science fiction kind of just ended up being the backdrop because it's a little side <laughs> thing that I, I like. But it's still, 
consistent with everything else that you're doing. It still relates to big questions and impactful conversations and writing and finding your voice and language. And it sounds like that's what you're doing. Um, I guess bonus question out of curiosity, how do you write? What is the process and what can you tell the students about what they should do to, to write better? Not like skill wise, but environment wise in terms of distraction. Yeah. I mean, I do think it's different for everybody. Um, I tend to write early in the morning. I have a little um, quote here on my wall. It says, um, you have to write first thing in the morning before the monsters of your mind are awake. Cool. <laughs> Which uh, <laughs> is just the way that, you know, I work best. Um, before so do you I block off a time where nobody can, can connect with you? Like it's pretty, you're in your own planet basically for a while? Kind of, yeah. Like I don't have my messaging app on my laptop. Um, mm -hmm. and I just turn the Wi-Fi off usually, um, max out my screen onto the, the document that I'm working on or whether it's notion or I'm obsessed with notion, um, or like a word doc or whatever. Um, and I just write like a lot of times I don't have a specific structure for anything either. And I mean, I know for students, like if they're working on essays that have like a, a more specific structure that they're going for, but. I've always helped that or always it's always helped me um, to like know the prompt um, for an essay or for some kind of assignment and then just kind of verbal diarrhea on the page. Mm -hmm. um, let out every possible thing that could come up, not organized, not put into paragraphs, no quotes, like uh, nothing, just kind of get it all out, all of the connections and things that you can think of. Um, I've heard some people like to voice record it first, like as a voice note and then dump it into a document um, and then organize it afterwards. That's kind of my process. I think, the, I think the best part about that is just that you go from nothing to something and that's yeah. really encouraging. Yeah, there was something um, one of my writing professors used to say is that the only job, um, oh, what did he say? The only job of the first draft is for it to exist mm. <laughs> it doesn't have to be good it can be total trash but it just has to exist and then you build off of it yeah so most people not writing because it needs to be there's a lot of procrastination in writing which is let me research a little more let me you know i don't know think a little bit more think more but yeah. it's you you just find time early in the morning and 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 go yeah, the editing part is easier when you have something to work off of, um, right. something to like cite sources off of and organize. So getting that dump out first <laughs> is really helpful. Okay, so um, a lot of stuff we got to in this interview, but across all the currents is the importance of finding a voice to communicate how we're feeling important topics in life, using it for many different purposes. If people are involved in one type of field, one type of job, one type of athletics, well, just because you're changing from that to something else doesn't mean that you can't take the things that you worked with and that went really well there with you and transfer the skills over. Um, but most importantly, to really ask for help when you need it. And, um, and hopefully people can find a language to to, to be heard and to be understood. And, and that could be a part of their healing. So thank you so much for coming on. Yeah. Thank you so much. This was great, great conversation. Yeah. And of course, a disclaimer, this podcast in all of our mental health learning and educational content is not therapy and is not a replacement for therapy. Please seek professional help. If needed, go to www.resolve with two V's .ca to get the support you need. And that's all for now. We hope this was helpful in some small way. If you like our content, please subscribe and give us a five-star review wherever you are listening. Make sure to keep updated with all of our content on Instagram, TikTok, and Twitter. And of course, come check us out at www.resolve.com 
that's resolve with two vs.ca to learn more about how our services can support your needs. Till Til next time, take care. care. Theme song for this podcast is done by the band Mokuse no Maguro in their song Midnight Empty Street. <laughs>